This week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast is brought to you by Randall Nicole Designs. Randall King, owner and designer, has been curating beautiful graphic designs, logos, and websites for nearly 10 years. If you're looking to work with a designer to build your farm or ranch logo, create cohesive branding materials for your business, or build that website you've been thinking about, head to randallnicoledesigns.ca to start building something beautiful together. Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. On today's show, you'll meet Elaine Vandiver. In her own words, Elaine became a farmer by happenstance. After moving out to a 10-acre parcel of land with her husband near Walla Walla, Washington in 2013, looking for a fresh start, Elaine accidentally turned their old homestead with two llamas into an alpaca and cut flower farm. She left her stable government job in 2019 to farm full-time and offers both commercially machine-knit garments from the fibers of her animals and grows and sells specialty cut flowers at the local farmer's market and through her CSA. There is so much fun to be had in today's episode. Not only do we get to talk about llamas and alpacas, which are fun in themselves, Elaine is from Walla Walla, Washington, which is just always super fun to say. (laughs) Before we get to today's episode with Elaine, I just want to give a warm welcome to Katie W., our newest patron at the Tier 10 level over on Patreon. Katie now has access to ad-free listening, extended episodes, and patron-only episodes. So thank you so much, Katie, for joining the patron community. And also a big thank you to Amanda S. for your contribution to the Rural Woman podcast through PayPal. If you're looking to support the show and are not necessarily looking for the extras through Patreon, you have the option to financially support the Rural Woman podcast through PayPal. The links for more information about Patreon and PayPal are in today's show notes, so be sure to check those out. And again, thank you so much for your continued support. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Elaine. Hi, Elaine. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am really excited to get to know you better and to share your story with my audience today. Wonderful. I am so honored to be here. I appreciate being included. Yes. Well, and we were just chatting before we started recording about your lovely friend, Jamie, who has nominated you to be on the podcast today. So I am so thankful for the ladies who put forward the other ladies of agriculture who they think their story needs to be shared. So I'm thinking there's something special about you that we need to we need to dig into. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet. So for the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, tell us about who you are and where you're from. Well, my name is Elaine Vandiver, and my husband and I have a little 10-acre farm in Walla Walla, Washington, where we primarily raise alpacas for their fiber, 
and we have a cut flower farm as well. Both things sound like so much fun, and I am excited to learn more about both of them. (laughs) So tell us how you guys got your start in agriculture on your homestead. That's a great question. So I often tell folks I am an accidental farmer. My path to agriculture was long and winding, as many are, but it was kind of dotted with quite a bit of heartache. My husband and I tried for seven years to start a family in the traditional way as well as in all the non-traditional ways. And at the end of seven years, we kind of came to a crossroads. It was time to kind of find a new path, if you will. And so for me at that time, I was really just looking for some space to process and just kind of think of something new that I wanted to do. And we were living in Walla Walla at the time and love this place. If you've ever been, you would know why. So I didn't want to leave entirely, but I needed some space. And we were living in, you know, a beautiful house with lots of rooms in a subdivision with lots of growing families. So for me, I kind of needed a little bit from that to kind of regroup, if you will. And so not wanting to leave Walla Walla, we started looking around to see if we could just find some acreage. And so that is really the long of the short. We found this property that we're on and I had no plans, absolutely no plans. I had a really nice cushy government job with great vacation and benefits and a nice little every two week salary. And so we got the place. It's an old homestead. It's got a really old house, has a nice, beautiful old barn and about 10 acres, most of which is in pasture. And so no plans, even though it was what some folks would call a farm. It was just a secret for us. And that very first spring, because we were tied up with all the renovations to the house, which I should say almost eight years later are still ongoing. So when we got here, it came with two llamas. And that spring, those two llamas could not eat eight acres of pasture. And so we did the next best thing, which in my head was, well, let's get some eggs because they're related to llamas. And so we got some alpacas thinking, oh, well, they can, you know, just they're cute lawnmowers and they'll be able to eat this grass and it'll be great. What did I know? Because I didn't do a ton of research. They're very efficient eaters. So it was like a handful and then got another handful. And then we were like, a full-on gaggle of alpacas and finally got it under control where they were managing the pastures for us. But that really, getting the alpacas was purely just some critters to like complete the country scene. And that has actually morphed into us becoming farmers and for me, doing it full-time now since 2019. That is so great. And like you said, coming from the heartache of infertility with your husband and just finding an open space where you can heal and just process everything. And it sounds like you found the perfect little spot for that. Oh, we did. We we really did. We did not really have a clue of what we were biting off, both in the good and the bad, when we got this place. Like I said, the seller ended up giving us two llamas with it. And the other thing she did was she said to us, 
this used to be an old homestead. And, you know, I was born and raised in the Chicagoland area. My husband's from Salt Lake City. Neither of us raised or involved in agriculture in any way. And more homestead. So I didn't really even know what that meant. And when she, she told us that, I was like, oh, okay, you know. Well, at closing, she handed us a big packet of papers that actually kind of outlined what that meant. So it was the paperwork from the original homesteader, their copies, of course, of all of the documents showing when he came out here and petitioned for the land, 1870. It has his name and, you know, it's just a whole process. So seeing that was really kind of cool because we were definitely in a space of, you know, processing coming out of the parenthood dream into something new. And it was really, it was like, oh, I didn't even, I didn't even know about homesteads. And to have a little piece of that heritage was kind of akin to like the heritage that one would get from a family. So it was really kind of like the, you know, little icing on the cake, I guess you could say. Yeah, for sure. And so the owner that you purchased it from, do you know what, like when she had originally purchased the land, like how far along the line of this homestead was she? You know, I've done a little bit more research on that, but not as much as I should have. So I feel like she is probably the 10th, maybe the 11th owner. And she actually didn't do the research. It was several owners before her had done this research. It was pre-internet. It was like in the early 80s where the the owner at the time had written to, I believe it was the Bureau of Land Management and the National Archives and had requested copies. How they knew that this place had that kind of history, I'm not sure. And so like every owner probably for the last 50 or 60 years has this paperwork on. So it's probably six or seven of us have had it. So pretty fascinating stuff, I think. Yeah. And I just think it's so neat that somebody took the time and extra effort to figure out all of this information and like to think of somebody doing this before the internet, like that would be a lot of work to go through to get all of this information. So that's a pretty little home welcoming package to receive. Oh, absolutely. And even better, there were a couple photographs of the homestead when the house was originally built and there's a gentleman on the porch, which I cannot confirm, but I speculate and I just have decided it's him, the original homesteader on the porch of the farmhouse, as well as a couple pictures of the old barns covered in snow and just really pretty cool. So cool. And those are such cherished memories to keep around your home and the homestead for sure. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk more about the llamas that you also received with the purchase of your homestead. Did you know anything about llamas before you bought this land? Not at all. And when she told us about it, my previous job with the government dealt with writing contracts. And so when she said, oh, yeah, the, the llamas come with the place, I was like, yeah, I read that contract like 500 times. There was no mention of a llama in there. But at that point, you know, we were just kind of like, okay, we have two llamas. So I had no idea anything about like what they were used for, how you care for them. And so those first couple weeks, I spent time just going down the internet rabbit hole of, you know, what do you do with llamas? And that's how I found out, oh, llamas are related to alpacas. 
oh, those are so cute. And I had seen another before. Um, and then it was like, oh, and then there's an alpaca farm about 25 miles from here. Oh, maybe we should go check that out. And that's kind of how that evolved. And we went over that farm and then we brought part of that farm to our farm. So That's so funny. So for the listeners, there could be a few of them. I'm included. I don't really know anything about llamas or alpacas. So tell us more about them and what the difference between the two is. I'm sure the alpacas get mistaken for llamas all of the time. Like I even just think in like mainstream media and like people and their obsession with llamas in pajamas and all of the things, right? What are some of the differences between llamas and alpacas? Oh, no, that's and I was in the same category. So they are in the same species. They're all camelids, you know, camels being at the top of species. So the primary difference between a llama and alpaca, in my personal opinion, is size. Llamas are about two-thirds bigger than alpacas. There's a couple other little nuanced things about the size and placement of their ear and tails. For the most part, side-by-side side, to any old person, Llamas are bigger than alpacas. And then I would say, even though I still have one remaining llama, that's Loretta, her companion Leroy passed away a couple years ago. So I don't, I'm not super well versed in all of the uses for llamas specifically, but what I have learned is typically they are raised to be livestock guardians as well as pack animals. I follow a couple folks on Instagram that use them to pack into the mountains for, you know, just for casual tours with tourists, as well as like literally packing equipment and going out and hunting and packing stuff back. And I've seen them in the Walla Walla Valley, you know, located with sheep to kind of help with predation. So that's what I understand llamas to be. Now, alpacas, I raise them particularly just for their fiber or their fleece, or some people call it wool, but it's all the same thing. So I raise them for fiber production, but I also know some folks keep them just as pseudo pets, if you will, that just happen to live outside. I've seen them used as therapy animals. They're very, very intelligent and they can be trained. So yeah, that's that's what I would convince between the two. I think you can, depending on the, the, how well bred the llamas are. I, I know folks will use their fiber as well for different uses. But I, I use the alpaca fiber real close to the skin garments because it's so, so soft. Very interesting. That is so neat. So tell us what some of your major learning curves have been as a brand new llama alpaca farmer. Wow. You know, I feel like I have a learning curve every year. So we're going into our eighth season this year. And... Early on, I really felt like the biggest learning curve was like herd management. We have large pastures. And so anytime we needed to like get our hands on the animal, trim their nails, give them a once or give them some vaccinations, like getting your hands on them because we keep ours as straight livestock. They don't get a lot of handling. They don't really care to be handled a lot. So when you have vast open actually getting your hands on them was a huge learning curve. And it was always a huge workout, <laughs> invariably involving some form of cardio via running and sprinting and yeah, all that good stuff. Knowing 
what the setup to have to easily move them from a large area to a small area. That was a two-year learning curve. I just, it didn't register. I just thought, oh, well, you know, that's part of, that's why farmers are so fit. Because, you know, you're chasing the animals all the time to try to get your hands on them. But now I know better with a little bit of thoughtful placement of some gates and fencing and panels, it can actually be an easier process of handling them. So that was like the early on big learning curves. And just as of late, you know, some of the more finer points of doctoring has been a bigger issue for us as our herd has gotten larger. Bursting babies has always been such a delicate process and knowing what to do and most certainly when to do it or when not to do anything is always a challenge. And I I learned that, or I should say that was reinforced for me this year. We had a female in labor and I quickly recognized she is not at all progressing naturally. And it resulted in a, in a C-section. So uh, had I not had those years and years of just observing them and learning, I don't think I would have had the confidence to go, this is beyond my skill set. I got to get the vet here. And so, yeah, I think those are probably two of the biggest learning curves. That is so fascinating. I think it's so neat. <laughs> so like, let's say for their births, I guess, you said that she wasn't progressing. Is there something that you could have done like with cattle, like they pull the calf? Would they do the same thing for the alpaca if that was something that they could do? Yep, you know, and we've had that in years prior. So they come, they come out feet first because their feet are, or their legs are quite long. So it's their front legs, their nose, head, neck, and everything else. And in years past, we've had some that came out with one arm and not kind of bent an arm lock. So what we would do in those situations is you actually, it seems a little counterintuitive, but during a contraction, you actually help ease the baby back in just a little bit because it creates space in the uterus, the arm to kind of free up and then come out. But for us this year, she wasn't progressing at all. She had no presentation. The baby could not get out of the birth canal, and it was super rare, but totally 2020 kind of a thing, um, where she had a uterine torsion. She was just completely tangled in the uterus. There was no eggs, and she was breech. (laughs) So there was no, I mean, there was physically, there was nothing showing, but the mom was in act like she was contracting and pushing, and there was nothing coming out. And so there was only one way to get that baby out. So, right. yeah. <laughs> that poor mama. <laughs> that sounds rough. <laughs> she did really well. Yeah, it was it was like super high stress. And she did really well. It was just remarkable. Once we got her to the vet, I mean, it was such a fast process. And they stitched her up. And I just couldn't believe it. Like, stitched her all the way up and it was like okay you're ready to go home and I was like what? <laughs> she just had a c-section don't they stay overnight for this but no yeah exactly isn't there a nurse to help her and all of the things <laughs> <laughs> right that's what I was really hoping for but no she came home and true to alpacas which are high Andes animals they're used to being in the extremes she has done so well and this mom was a first-time mom too so it was you know, so she was experiencing this very not typical birth for her very first time. And she did so well. And then she took to the baby, which can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge, especially for a new mom when you've had so much hands on. 
at the very, very beginning, she took to the baby no problem. So it was definitely a, a very tense couple of days, but I'm standing out in the field looking at them right now, and they're, they're doing just great. Oh, that's so good. So what is your herd size now? I am at 22, and we've got five due in the late spring. So cute. I have seen a baby alpaca before, and they are like the cutest little fuzzy giraffe that you could have on a farm. They are so sweet and so lanky. So I'm very jealous that you get to see all of the new babies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like we had two this year and they are just, yeah, like you said, lanky. And especially right when they're first born, 11 months gestation, our almost went a full 12. So they've been crumpled up and then they've got these giant legs and this giant neck and they're just bumbling all around and it's so hard to like let them fall out and figure it out but it is also adorable too so so sweet randall king owner and designer at randall nicole digital designs has been providing her clients with exceptional graphic designs logos and websites for nearly 10 years Randall has even created designs for her clients that have been featured in Rolling Stone magazine. Recently, I have teamed up with Randall to curate and recreate all of the designs featured in my online store, Shop Wild Rose Farmer. Her philosophy, good design and good relationships come from collaboration, rings true through her work and is why I personally recommend Randall Nicole Designs. If you're looking for a designer who stays connected with the latest trends and technology and can help you with your web design or graphic design, maybe even your new farm logo, head to randallnicoledesigns.ca to connect with Randall to start making something beautiful together. So Tell us more about the fiber collection process. How often do you, and is it called shearing them? Is it the same as shearing a sheep or is it a different process? No, it's the same thing. But for us, we get a singular harvest a year. So we do our shearing in late spring, typically because we get super, super hot Summers out here, definitely in the triple digits. So we do ours in late spring so that they're comfortable when the summer heat arrives. But also I get that fiber and I get it into the queue for processing. Yeah, but it is very much like sheep shearing. Although I think sheep might get two shearings a year. Ours only get one. And it is a, it's a full day process. We usually start very, very early, and I'm even earlier than the shearer because I get everybody kind of, you know, wrangled up. We separate by color so that we don't have fibers of different colors because I process each fleece kind of separately. So everybody gets started and then cleaned up. Lots of, not combing, but like getting all the dirt and the debris off because they love to roll around in the hay and the grass. So there's always all kinds of veggie matter up into that fiber. So we try to get as much of that off before they're shorn because it's, it's just even harder once it's, it's off the animal and you want as much of it off as possible because the cleaner the fiber is, the cleaner the fiber is. So yeah, start super, super early in the morning. I get everybody separated 
cleaned up and the shear gets here and then it is like a intense workout. We try to move swiftly because the animals get really kind of amped up once they're all kind of separated from each other and in these little groups and then the, the electric shears are going. So we try to move pretty swiftly and very fortunate that our the crew that we put together each year has been honing their skill each year that goes by and so it's a very fine dance where you know everybody has a a job and somebody's over here pulling the next animal in and them on the shearing stand and then I'm there collecting the fiber and then one of my very best friends is skirting the fiber she puts it on a screen and tries to pick off as much of that stuff that we didn't get off when kind of cleaned them up initially and then she weighs it and she bags it. Then I hand her another one and it just kind of goes until we get through them all. Somewhere in the mix there too, we do a nail trim. We update anybody on vaccinations and then, yeah, and then we have a good, nice meal afterwards and a long, long soak in the tub after that too. No doubt. That sounds like an assembly line that goes mighty fast. <laughs> it does. But thankfully, it's just once a year. So I usually have to do like a whole week or two in preparation of stretching and yeah, trying to get ready for it because it is a hit the ground running kind of day. Yeah, for sure. So typically, how many pounds of taking off of each animal? That's a good question. And it varies. So like a yearling, so it's about a year old, very small, so not as much surface area. So on those animals, total fleece weight, usually less than three pounds. On an adult, I can get anywhere from four to seven pounds, depending. Now, in that, there are different cuts of fiber, if you will. The very first cut is what we call the prime cut, and that's the area where if you were to not that you would, but if you were, put saddle on the alpaca, it's everywhere that that saddle would kind of touch. And we call that the prime cut because that is probably your best fiber in terms of uniformity. Uniformity, I'm talking in the length of the fiber as well as in the fineness or the softness. So in that saddle region, it's going to be the most uniform. And so you want that to be, that's what we typically go into yarn for either hand knitting or garments. So that varies on the animal as well. I can get anywhere from two to four pounds, I want to say, on that. And then all of the other fiber, the second cut is usually like their neck, which we'll use for hand spinning fibers. And then around the belly and a little bit around the the back of the legs is like the third cut, which is like cleanup cuts, just to make sure they have a nice overall haircut. So Kind of hard, kind of hard to answer that because it just depends on the animal, on the size of the animal. But in 2020, we got a total of 60 pounds of prime fiber and like another 65 of seconds, I want to say. That's great. So after they are shorn and you have this fiber, what happens to the fiber afterwards? So we send our fiber to a fiber mill and there's a few Well, there's several that we use. We've actually got a few in our state that we're using, but a lot of our fiber goes to a mill in Tennessee where there they do all of the commercial milling where they they clean and then they basically they pick it apart, know how to say it, cleaned, open it all up, 
and then they cart it, which is basically putting it on the team to align all the fibers, and then they spin it into yarn for us. So it's, it's a very long process. By the time they get it and when we get it back is anywhere from like four to six months. So we spend a whole year growing the fiber and then another six months having it processed at the mill. So it's kind of a long, long, long harvest period. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I just think it's so neat and kind of like a lost art to be able to take this fiber and turn it into like hand spun products for people to use. Like that's, it's so cool to me. It just blows my mind that they can do this. I know, right? Yeah. I mean, even using commercial machinery, it's still a long process for them to do it. But it is, it's pretty incredible to see. Yeah, for sure. So what are you using your end fiber for? Like what, it, what is it going to? Are you selling it as raw wool or are you making products out of it? So I'm doing a little, a couple things. So the majority of my prime fiber goes in yarn production. And from there, I have a segment of yarn production for other hand crafters, for knitters, for crocheters. The larger percentage goes into a very, very fine laceway yarn for machine knitting. And then I have garments made using that. So it's kind of a little split. You know, I do a little bit for the hand knitters, of which I am one. And I think I heard you say on a podcast recently that you learned how to knit. I did. That was my 2020 project. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So I do a little bit of hand knitting yarns and then the bulk of it goes for machine knitting. And I've seen your products on your website and they are just absolutely beautiful. And the colors of all of this is they're just stunning. Ah, well, thank you so much because there's been, that's another learning curve on the production end. I do all natural dyeing of the products. So I grow dye plants from seed here. And then once the garments are back, I dye them as whole garments because I couldn't, I can't dye the very fancy yarn is so thin and it's thousands and thousands of yards and it has to be pristine so the machine can actually knit the item. So once I get them back, I, I do all dyeing. So Getting those saturated colors has been a little bit of a project for me over the last oh, six years. Well, you've done a great job because, this, like I said, the colors are stunning and they're just so beautiful and they're so natural looking. Like they're not like a processed color on top of this beautiful wool yarn that you've spent so much time and energy growing like and to grow the plants that you use to hand dye your items that just makes it I think all that more special oh thank you yeah when I first started having products made and just yarn because all I had was like whites and browns which are very beautiful I wanted to learn to get some color on them but you know we're on a septic here and so when I was exploring more conventional ways of dyeing it was like whoa Where, you know, like I didn't really love the idea of putting all that on the very soft fiber, but then it was like, what am I going to, how am I going to dispose of the affluent from that dye process, you know? And I'm like, I'm not putting that on, on my land because I ended up bringing, you know, like we use the land, we use the water that comes from the land. So natural dyeing was a, a natural fit, I guess you could say. Yeah, for sure. So I have a question about the texture of the final wool. What would you say it's like 
compared to like a typical standard sheep's wool? Ooh, oh, this this feels dangerous because I don't want to offend any sheep people. <laughs> <laughs> sheep people take whatever she's about to say with a grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> but I am also keen to know there's a lot of really fine wool sheep too. So with the spirit of that in mind, you know, alpaca and particularly I raised the Surrey alpaca, which has long, almost red-locked, very silken, almost slippery. They're known for their luster. So when you're looking at it, even though they've been rolling around in the dirt, when you open up that fleece, it's it's really shiny on the inside. So I find it to be very, very soft, but also kind of cool to the touch. But when you're wearing it, it's that really lovely warmth without having to have a lot of bulk which in some, not all, uh, sheep's wool, sometimes you need bulky yarns to get that insulating warmth, whereas with alpaca and specifically with surrey, a little bit goes a long way. So that's hopefully my very diplomatic answer. <laughs> you, I don't think you said anything to incriminate yourself, so I think you're okay. <laughs> oh, that's too good. So you're growing these plants to dye your your but you're also growing them in a CSA form so tell us more about your flower farming adventure yes so once we had the alpacas and I started to learn about dyeing I was still working full-time and it was getting harder and harder to continue to go to a cubicle even though the cubicle paid you know and so every year that went by it was just getting harder and harder but with alpacas, one harvest a year and a, the better part of a whole nother year spent processing it two years before I can typically bring something to market is a long, is a long way to go. That's kind of hard to leverage. And so one day I was out in the greenhouse, you know, starting seeds, just, you know, mindlessly thinking about things and just wishing I could do this full time. And how can I, you know, what can I do? And I'm, messing around in the house and I'm knocking over seeds and I knock over a thing of zinnia seeds. And I'm, you know, I was just growing those for me in one of my little beds. And I thought, wow, you know, I wonder, I wonder if I couldn't grow, I'm already flowers for dye. What, if, you know, what if I did some cut flowers? I really was unfamiliar if that was even a thing, you know, but I was like, well, I could try it. And so of course I got on the web and did a little more research and I was like, yes, Flower farming is a thing. And so I just decided, I'm like, well, maybe. Because in the summertime, the alpacas are out to pasture. They don't need a lot. It's usually the winter time. They need hay and they need, you know, me to keep their water from freezing. So it was like, well, you know, in the summer, the, the alpacas don't need a lot of work. What if I grew cut flowers, sold it at the market? You know, that could help with cash flow to pay for the fiber processing, the hay, and so that's kind of what I did in 2018. I took my first couple bouquets to the local farmer's market and started selling flowers. And so I'm doing that now. And I've added a bouquet CSA, which is like a flower take on like your regular community supported agriculture. You sign up in the winter. And then when the season kicks off, you get a weekly bouquet. 
So I've been doing that since 2018. And that has been really a nice little expansion of our business, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's so cool. And basically to be able to fund the shearing process and, you know, anybody would have a hard time waiting two years to be able to get a return on their investment. So that's a great way to supplement the income for the farm and make it kind of all work together. Yeah. And I mean, that's the financial piece has been very important, but like the other piece of like, oh, this really gives me something to dive into in the summer months. You know, I'm cutting flowers, growing flowers, and the alpacas are just out hatching. I use their manure as my primary amendment in the garden. So it's been a really lovely synergy from just a seasonal perspective, but also like just touches it, you know, like their manure goes into the flowers. I grow the flowers for their fibers. It's kind of a really beautiful circle, if you will. Yeah, for sure. That is so awesome. So what are your hopes for the future and your farm? Wow. Um, you know, 2020 has been kind of a tough year. So I guess, you know, I'm just, I'm looking to sustain what I have. I'm not really looking so much more. You know, I'm, I'm really a seasonal cut flower grower. I do just a tiny bit of season extension, but I don't know. I just, I really, I like to, I guess I guess could say the thing I'm looking forward to most is toning my skills to make me more sustainable, to make me more profitable while not stretching me so thin, I guess you could say. I guess just to continue to learn, to need to grow. Those are all great things. And like you said, like <laughs> to have specific skills and to grow those skills in what you're good at doing instead of adding in all of these other things. Because Lord knows if I could do everything I wanted to do on the farm, like A, I would be broke and B, like you said, stretched (laughs) thin, right? So just to have those specific things and do those specific things well, I think is a great plan for me in their farm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because it's it's hard, you know, when you, especially now that I do have the time to dedicate to the farm full time, where I'm always like, ooh, could I do that? Maybe I could do this. And then it's like, you know, it's like, don't forget, you know, when winter rolls around, everything else that needs to be done. And so, yeah, it's just, it's hard not to to want to bite off some more cool stuff to do. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. Elaine, it has been so lovely getting to chat with you and learning all about Alcas. And now I'm really tempted to get one. So thank you for that. But (laughs) you're quite welcome. (laughs) My last question for you today is what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? Oh, that's such a good question. I feel like every season has its own kind of little rewards, but like in general, you know, this has been my way to have a legacy and so to have a family, being able to do it in a different way has been incredibly rewarding. Getting to spend my time outside, I just feel very privileged to be able to do that. And, you know, getting to kind of determine the direction of my farm and having having that creative freedom, as well as some really, really good work day in and day out, I think is probably the most rewarding of all of it. That was so beautiful. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. For the listeners who would like to stay in contact with you after the show, where can they find you online? Well, I've got two websites. The alpacas are under oldhomesteadalpacas.com. 
And the cut flowers, I run that under Golson Gardens, Golson being the homestead family, and on, on both on Instagram and Facebook as Old Homestead Heads and Golson Gardens. Perfect. And I will link all of those in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for amplifying the female voice in agriculture. This is really, really awesome. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure to share with my listeners. So thank you again for being a guest here on the Rural Woman Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at wildrosefarmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.